Tell me what we're looking at here. This is um, our still. As you can see, um, there are this integrates um, the pot still, as you see in traditional distilleries. This is a vacuum. We use vacuum distillation for our gin. Everything is done under glass. We are not in a factory or a great distilling hall. Where are we? We are in what back in the 1970s was called in this family the playroom. Um, because Ian has lived in this house since 1972. Um, it, there was originally a kitchen there, and then it was built out. And so that means we have access to water and plumbing. What is this neighbourhood called? This is Highgate. This is Highgate. Yeah, it's quite um, a historic area. We've got a very famous cemetery where Karl Marx is buried. Oh. And George Michael. And um, uh, brothers, yeah, <laughs> <to the end>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, lots of other famous people. Can I say, in, in my vulgar way, it is very fucking pleasant out there. Here's what the citation from the World Gin Awards says whiffs of mint, fennel, and aniseed, as well as a good amount of caraway, a little more fruitiness on the palate, complex and interesting. Now, I have the palate of a four-year-old, so I cannot say if I experienced all of those flavors in Sacred Spirit's Old Tom Gin. But I can say that it was named the world's best Old Tom Gin, that's in the entire world, in 2019. And even if my palate isn't that discerning, I'm not always so easily charmed, but these people charmed me. I trekked north in London to Sacred Spirit's headquarters, which is actually the home of the wife and husband team, Hilary Whitney and Ian Hart. And they fed me alcohol in delicate glasses and charmed me with their gorgeous life in leafy Highgate, with a ramshackle English garden in the back and a playroom full of curvy, vacuum-distilling glass whirligigs that make London's finest gin. This is another re-release of our London series, no longer for subscribers only, just free to the world wherever you get your podcasts. So... Let's have some gin with Hillary Whitney. I'm Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, this is The Trip. Drinking with exceptional people around the world. Cheers. Welcome to Highgate. Thank you. Oh, that's delicious. It is delicious. It's my, my gimlet is my go-to cocktail. It's, I love hmm. it. What, what, so what's in this? You, you have a, a preference. Uh, Rose of Slime Cordial. Okay. Um, which is traditionally what was used in gimlets. I think some people find it a little bit too sweet now, but um, if you get the proportions right, it, it works. Um, I think you might remember it was in, um, it's mentioned in uh, The Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler. Uh-huh. 
So, you, so you're uh, being a literary type. You are, you're going to drink a literary cocktail. I, well, I do think that one of the things about drinks and maybe and spirits in particular, no, probably all drinks, wine, beer. I think there are strong literary connections, which I really like. I really enjoy that part of it. There's some very good writing about drinking. And you know, we have this conversation about about cannabis, about alcohol, about creativity. You know, mm-hmm. do like. Th- th- at what point is it useful? How do you incorporate it into your kind of writers, you know, as people who try to write? Like, mm-hmm. how do these things kind of work in there? How does alcohol fit into into writing? You were a writer uh, before you made Fine Spirits uh, and a journalist. So how, I don't know, does it play a role? Uh, well, for me, to be quite honest, I can't drink and write. It, it doesn't work. So I once met Lawrence Ferngetti. And he told me how he really, really tried to stop Jack Kerouac from drinking because he was the first person ever to publish Kerouac. And he said he he kidnapped him once and took him to his um, hut, his kind of place in Big Sur, uh, to try and get him off so he could start writing again. And it just didn't work. And he said it was a ruination of him. And of course, there's all those people like Scott Fitzgerald and who I think were ruined by alcohol. But I love reading about it. I think it makes for great reading. But personally, if I have to write something, whether it's an email or anything, I can't do it so save it, save with it, a drink. Yeah. I have to be completely straight. Save it for post-game. Yeah. When when you've turned the manuscript in. Yeah. Or after a, a, a grueling, existentially terrifying session with a blank page. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. She said, if, taking another sip. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're, we're not here to write. We're no. here to talk. Yeah. And if there's one human activity that I think is immeasurably and uh, consistently improved by drinking, it's talking. Yes, I agree. Can I agree. I dare anybody to come up with an argument against that. Um, <laughs> said the man speaking loudly at the end of the bar. <laughs> <laughs> I've become witty and uh, so much more interesting. Yeah. So it's not just the, the cordial, but it's... Um, it's sacred gin in here. It's sacred gin in here, yeah. Well, classic sacred gin, which is made in this house in Highgate. So I have been very fascinated by gin as a consumer, but also as somebody uh, like you who sort of likes to think perhaps a little more about alcohol than, than I should. I don't know uh, if that qualifies, uh, if you're in that camp as well. But I am fascinated by being in what I would consider the spiritual home of gin. Mm-hmm. London, yes. <laughs> I mean, indeed. it's London. It's yeah. London. Yeah. London Dry Gin is yeah. uh, an actual... I mean, what is... Is it like a DOC? Do you have to make... Do you have to make the gin within the confines of London? London Dry Gin can be made anywhere. It it's a category. And obviously, it's kind of nice when it comes to London, but the, there are very, very good gins made all over... London Dry Gins made all over the world now. It basically means that... It has to be made from very good quality base spirit. It um, has to have a certain, has to have a larger proportion of juniper compared to the other botanicals. It has to be juniper led, and it shouldn't have anything added afterwards, like sugar or flavouring or colour or anything like that. And is your classic sacred gin a London dry? It is indeed. Yes. Oh, yeah. You couldn't start anywhere else. You no, need You yeah, need to have yeah. a base of. Yeah. This is Highgate, damn it. And also, I don't. I don't we probably at the time didn't understand you could kind of go from that but you could kind of wander from that but we have done since so how let's let's talk about sacred because i think one of i mean we've published about your gin on on roads and kingdoms before oliver below uh, mm-hmm. did this incredible piece about the new gin craze and i think for him you guys were a a sort of an avatar for a new generation of distiller 
that was recovering gin from a very tired sort of like aging royalties drink. Absolutely, the Queen Mother. The Queen yeah. Mother. I mean, from Queen Anne on yes. down to present time, <laughs> you had uh, a sort of a, a bunch of very stuffy gin drinkers. Yeah. And uh, as he had described it, it, for I think young Londoners, especially young British people, gin was this tired colonial mm-hmm. spirit. And all of a sudden that changes and you have people like yourselves making this incredibly thoughtful, refined, uh, valuable, desired gin in a still in your playroom. <laughs> how how did we get how did we get to there uh, with sacred spirits? How did how did you how did you come to this business? It's very strange and I'm not really sure how it happened. Ian's quite good at anticipating waves and things um so he was out of a job back in uh, he worked in finance and he was out of a job back in is it uh is it 2000 and 2007 2006 2007 before the, the crash really yeah um so he was ahead of his time when everyone else lost their jobs well he worked <laughs> in financial recruitment so obviously everyone started slowing down before then he has done many other things but that was what he was doing at the time and he is very entrepreneurial and he also is very interested in food and drink. He started experimenting. He had this, he had several ideas, but one of them was he, he'd always enjoyed distilling. As a child, he enjoyed distilling, although not alcohol, but gases and unusual things. Yes, everyone looks surprised when I say that, but he used to do that in that room. Child I know. distillers. Yeah. It's very Diken- <laughs> Dickensian somehow. So he started distilling, um, he's got a collection of Bordeaux wine and he started distilling it so, so he could make like more uh, poorer vintages that had been through, uh, that had been watery harvests, um, so he could make them richer. I can't, you know, he would take the water, extract some of the water out so that it makes the wine richer and um, not so dilute, I guess. And it actually works very well, but you can't really do much with that. Because, I mean, the winemaker themselves would have a fit. And, <laughs> right. You're um, not going to rebottle and, uh, yeah, yeah, and start selling that. that. Um, but he'd always quite enjoyed drinking gin. And so he thought he could use his rotavat that he'd been using to distill the wines with to make a gin. And he tried 23 different recipes. And we used to take them to our local pub, The Wrestlers, around the corner to for people to try and then the 23rd recipe was the one that everyone said yes this is great and the landlord said if you bottle it i'll put it behind the bar so that's what we did wow and you were saying earlier there was a a period of dubious legality as you were experimenting was that in that era like 2008 i guess and i'm not just saying it because it's been reported i don't think we were doing anything illegal but we we certainly couldn't have sold it or anything. Then we got our licenses and and that kind of thing. And at that time, I was working as a freelance journalist. So Oliver had gathered a a small round table of tasters when he did this story about uh, about the new gin craze, and he had a lot of comments that were like, "Hmm, this tastes like gin." <laughs> and I think for a lot of people, particularly casual drinkers, you know, good gin tastes like gin, bad gin tastes like not that pleasant gin but it's Mm. you know that there's a such a strong especially this juniper forward thing is such a strong flavor profile so out of 23 gin recipes the crew at the wrestler had decided that this was the one what what for you makes like that really 
great, solid gin? Like, what are you tasting when you're tasting it? Um, with our gin, I'm, I'm tasting a certain mouthfeel, which is hard to describe, but it's kind of a creaminess. I think it's quite creamy. I think it's quite soft. That's interesting. Those are two things that would, two words I would have kept very far from gin, usually. Yeah. And I but guess having, that's, but yeah. having said that, it's still, is it, it, because we distill botanicals at such a low temperature, it's still kind of crisp and fresh. It's very fresh, I think. I would um, describe it as a fresh. And that is the secret. Obviously, Ian is the mad genius sort of um, working on the plumbing and the gas uh, and the, the vacuum and the glass containers. But but essentially the process and one of the distinct characteristics of what you do is vacuum distilling. So you do it at lower temperature. Mm-hmm. You're not cooking the flavor out exactly in a, in a certain way. And that's how you get these very strong freshness that you're yeah. talking about. And it also means that that is also partly why we were able to do it in the house because it's very safe. You know, you're not going, nothing's going to explode. It's really safe. At, at most, you'll sort of um, suck up a ball of lint or something. Yeah. <laughs> vacuum is not uh, vacuum is not a dangerous technology. It's not. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> I mean, it is a, it is a good question because we think about so many uh, home home brew operations that go bad. Like yeah. you want to make sure the worst case scenario. Besides the bit of gimlet on this. Uh, uh, this recorder that we're using. Uh, what has has there ever been a, a, a calamity, a catastrophe here, a, a, a large cleanup? There have been large, um, yeah. The flask, um, flasks have broken. Ian's um, unplugged something, and the pressure's been too much, and it's like shattered. And so that is the you know there's a glass everywhere, a lot of liquid, and it's it's a, a nuisance to to clear up. But it's not. As long as you pick up the glass, it's not dangerous. You know, you're not going to, the house won't set on fire. Right. And we're not talking about sort of uh, shards of glass flying through high gates. No, it's, cr- it's called crumbling on the floor. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, and and you, you, you do use glass and, and exclusively in a way that uh, is, is different from a lot of distilling. Certainly when I've been to large operations, it's all stainless steel. It's all mm-hmm. metals. Uh, why glass? What's the... That, I think that was, it was a way of that Ian could design his equipment. And um, because we started with the Rotovap, it just kind of made sense. What is a Rotovap? It's just some sort of rotor. You're making faces at me. That's fine. We, can, <laughs> we, we don't have to go into the Rotovap. Rotovaps are, I know that a lot of bartenders use them to make bits and pieces for their cocktails. Uh-huh. And um, Heston Blumenthal uses one a lot. And uh, so yeah. they're kind of like this high gastronomy. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I, yeah. I mean, listen, I'm, 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 I'm telling on myself here because this is nominally a slightly alcoholic podcast, and I, I should know. I'm it's sure. A, it's a, it's a, it's rotor, rotary evaporation. So it's. Um, oh, okay. Is it anything like these? Uh, are you vaping it? I don't know. I'm going to bring it back to California and just pretend it's like one of these volcano massive <laughs> cannabis vaping machines. <laughs> no, um, it's, and they just it sit, would sit on this table very easily. Okay. Um. It's, it will sit on a bar top very easily. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. God damn, that's delicious. Mm. I have to say, I was I was surprised. You know, we were proposing a drink, and I I, I thought as people who make, you know, 
one of the most celebrated gins there is that you would not be cocktail people that you would sort oh. of say well this needs to be sipped neat because you know the flavor profile is you know I, I i have this picture of sort of you know the the artists of the uh distilled spirits world demanding a singular focus and attention on what they've made i i i think a, a gimlet is fairly um Class. I mean, not obviously it's classic, but I think it doesn't interfere too much. You might disagree with the lime, but um, I have to say I would rather drink a sip a gin neat than have it with tonic. Probably, I'm not a huge G and T fan. Right, and we we've spent a lot of time in Spain, where gin tonic is a you know a national mm-hmm. emblem mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, and. What they've done to sort of address that is to create fancier tonics. Yeah. So you've got Fever Tree and, you know, all yeah. of these, like... I have to say, I do like Fever Tree, and that's probably... St- I do drink G&T sometimes, and that is because I had one with Fever Tree, and I thought, oh, that's... that's I like that. That's okay. Right, there's some thought. Yeah. If yeah. you're just, like, sort of, like, drowning your gin in Schweppes... Yeah, uh, or from a gun, you know, and sort of, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I guess you know. I would, so, what's uh, a bottle of sacred gin? What does that go for? Like your classic gin? What's the, what's what's the kind of general retail around here? Oh well, um, probably about thirty three pounds. But okay. obviously, in places like Selfridges and Fortnums, it's much more expensive. Mm-hmm. But we're, we are not for sale in any supermarkets. So. so, so I can't go to Little Weight Rose and, and no, you can't. Okay, no. um, but it's 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 at a price point where maybe people would think twice. You would hope about sort of chugging it with Schweppes or... <laughs> it is. So interestingly, when we first started, it was considered um, very expensive. But I mean, there's so many gins now that are so much more expensive. It's um, when I'm doing a tasting and people say, how much is it? Before I used to think, oh, they're going to think it's expensive. And now it's just, okay, that's fine. Now yeah. you think, oh, I need to raise my price. Yes. <laughs> I think maybe we do. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, all right. We will um, we'll announce pricing. <laughs> uh, pricing news when this comes out. But I'm glad that you said that we um, we were mentioned and Oliver said that, you know, we we were amongst the first because we were. And it has actually, I feel, become slightly forgotten. You know, there's been I mean, there are so many gins now. I don't know how many there are. You probably know better than me, but um, there are so many on the market. Yeah, and, um, I definitely don't know better than you. But the general cloud mm, sense that I think you yeah. and I both have is like a, a huge number of gins with names that just were unknown to me yeah. before I laid eyes on them. And they're all clearly, I mean, I don't, and I actually don't know the landscape of this, but there must be some astroturfing as well, the way that we see with microbrew in the United States, where you have large liquor companies sort of now pretending to be issuing micro distillery gin yeah um because there's a market there and they're always going to kind of fill that market and and um try there's definitely um a lot of gins who are not actually made by obviously they're made by someone but they're not small brand there are several distilleries that make a lot of gins for a lot of different people got it so they're and then the the marketing is where the marketing is where they really uh, yeah yeah. Um, all right, so, but you guys are no slouches in marketing. People know your brand. You have a new bottle coming out. Mm-hmm. This is so you're not you're not just sort of ignoring this and and sending it out in sort of uh, nameless vials. I don't know how we'd get on today because people now have wonderful marketing. I think we were fortunate that we had a we were on we were, had a steal or, or you know we we were so early because we certainly didn't have the money to pay for a lot of expensive marketing and our branding at the beginning was very. Um, 
well, it wasn't very good, to be honest. I mean, we had um, Ian actually designed and actually made our first label. I mean, we had it properly printed up. And then we had another label designed by a friend. And then we actually met a branding agency who did the current label. Although we have changed some of them since then. But, um, yeah, I mean, some people have amazing marketing now. You know, it's just... We used to go to a tasting you know, event like the Manhattan cocktail classic and you know we just have our little table and our tasting cups and our bottle and that would be that and other people had you know trucks and barrels and bicycles and girls in bikinis girls in bikinis (laughs) oh we were in the um san diego spirits festival and uh we had uh, a stand next to this brand um i think it was called i think it was it was a vodka and i think it was called teas and it was actually owned by two gay women and the bottle was shaped like a naked woman. And um, uh, the uh, stand was run, not by the owners, but by a couple of models who were very... Um, they were models like, I remember models being like in the 70s and things. They were glamour models. And they had tiny silver bikinis and long, long blonde hair. And they had very high heels. And they were, they had, they were tottering around and offering people samples of their vodka um, to try. And uh, and they were they were very nice. They were very friendly. They were very sweet. But, but I felt like practically Amish next to them in my my black dress and thing. But I'm thrilled to say um, we got more people to our stand because our liquid was good. So that was very nice. Uh, funny, yeah. It wasn't yeah. a sex convention as it yeah. turns out. It was <laughs> yeah. a liquor people, convention. People were interested in the in the liquid. So um, that's good. Yeah. I'm. I'm uh, that's very validating to hear that. But I mean, it is. It it's just the the truth of. Liquor. I mean, this is what you see with Diageo, and I mean, it's ninety-eight percent marketing, right? Mm. The the money that goes into the actual, you know, contents of the bottle uh, seems to be very, very small. So, yeah. how do you guys navigate that? What's what feels like a good size for uh, Sacred Gin for an independent? Um, you know, legit London gin maker. How much output? Like, how do you want to grow? Is there like a comfortable um, I mean, not to make assumptions, you guys are living fine. This is beautiful. It's a nice home, but it's not like Casamigos selling for a hundred million dollars or <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah. So, how do you guys um, see yourselves in the in this like very voracious and sort of hype driven uh, liquor universe? It's um, it is very difficult, and sometimes it's quite daunting. When we first started out, um, we were quite innocent about um, this kind of thing, and also the there wasn't the competition then, so Sipsmith was around, Chase was around. Before that, we, there was Hendrix and Bombay Sapphire, and and that was it. That was like people thought they were drinking well. <laughs> I remember when um, Bombay Sapphire came out, and I was very excited by it, and um, you know went and bought a bottle and thought it was great. And they did do a lot for the for the gin category. You know, they made people interested in botanicals. So you know, they they have a very, you know. Yeah, they were important. They had a role. Yeah, but, they definitely. But it's had evolved a role. quite beyond. But things uh, have evolved since then. And of course, if you like Bombay Sapphire, that's that's perfectly fine. Everyone's entitled to like what they like. But so the fact that we were that we were small and we were new, and also the liquid was very good, was enough in those days. It's it, you know that was that was the story. Oh, there's these people and they make gin and they and they make it in their house and um, and it was quite tricky, like you were saying. It had a reputation then for being a bit, um, you know, 
things that stuffy kernels drank, that kind of thing. And I remember going to a concert and I always had a little bottle of our gin um, in my bag and I saw uh, another journalist I knew who's sort of like a 20-something and I said, oh, come and, come and taste my gin, come and taste my gin and he had a little bit and he said, oh yeah, it's really nice, he said, but I mean, how are you going to sell it? No one drinks gin now. So that was the problem then more than uh, sort of big, not having a big marketing budget, which we've never had because we got a lot of press on the back of that. You know, we had a thing on the BBC came and did something and... Um, yeah, we had quite a lot of press. You know, one of the things that I find fascinating, why I'm so excited to talk to you in North London about gin, is <laughs> gin, I think, among all the spirits, is so deeply tied to Englishness. Yes. I mean, although I guess it came over... My, my family says that we're descendants of William of Orange. Um, Your family are descendants of William of Orange? Oh, yeah, that's what they okay. say. Yeah. But I would guarantee that's probably pretty bullshit. That's a nice thing to say. It is nice. William of Orange came over in 1688, and yeah. he brought lots of Dutch shit, yeah. including gin. Geneva. Geneva. Yeah. Um, which then turned into, as Oliver had put it in his article, turned into occupying essentially the space that crack cocaine occupied absolutely, in, in absolutely. the 90s. And of course, one of the reasons they allowed people to distill gin or distill spirits was because they were at war with France and they wanted to stop people drinking French brandy. So, um, so the, And also it helped the farmers and uh, the, the farmers are always politically conservative. So there were, there were lots of reasons to encourage... Because the farmers would... Be buying the set, were selling wheat. Yeah, got um, it. And yeah. it's a part of the crop rotation yeah. that they needed. Yeah. But then it turned into... And, and of course, it's called the farmers and landowners. You know, it goes yeah. on and on and on. So. Um, and then it turned into, I, you know, I just saw this statistic that in the like mid-18th century when they really started to crack down and... You know, there was a huge kind of communal outcry against the sins of uh, gin. They said that 80% of the gin was drunk here in London. And it was really like an urban phenomenon. And it was like all the things that this landed aristocracy feared about urbanity, you know, sort of mob rule and so on. They Mm -hmm. said like, you know, somebody said like, uh, you know, when they drink gin, people think they're kings. Yes, yes. And (laughs) I think... And I think, of course, life then was really hard. It was really difficult. Um, people were incredibly poor. People starved. And um, it gave some relief from that. Yeah. And the other thing, which is why I think it's, I mean, I'll, I'll ask you how this works in the modern gin craze, but certainly the, the old gin craze was also very gendered, right? This, instead of, you know, drinking beer from pewter cups, here was like a refined thing that you know the descriptions of the glassware that they would use and and that's also where the focus of the public paranoia about gin was that moms were like selling their babies for, absolutely yeah. for gin and um what was this uh you were talking about writers about alcohol but uh there's a hogarth print a gin lane yes it's just like a dystopian vision of like a mom neglecting her child the, and... the baby falling out of her arms and <laughs> but you know that was um commissioned by um, I can't remember which brewery it is now. I think uh, one of the breweries, because um, they wanted people to drink beer and not gin. So the the, uh, the marketing geniuses of their day yes. commissioned Hogarth yeah. to do a total <laughs> That's right. hit, yeah. take yeah. it to yeah. a, uh, yeah. a character assassination of gin, um, and also the way that you know they were calling it Jennifer and kind of had turned it into a woman. Like you know, mm-hmm. gin was this uh, this this female almost 
kind of psychotic and seductive yes. presence yeah. that was destroying their society. It's so fascinating to me to turn around and then you're right where people who are young and want to make sort of bold, uh, you know, angry statements wouldn't have turned to Colonel's Gin, no. you know, to do that. Well, there's, there's all there's all sorts of things. So, um, and it kind of goes in cycles. So I think obviously you get in the in the 40s and 50s, people went back to cocktails. People started drinking martinis and the three martini lunch and that kind of thing. But as their children grew up, and then particularly in the US as well, sort of the counterculture of the 60s and stuff, people rejected what their parents had. And having a cocktail would seem a stuffy, formal thing to do. Now, we see, I think the ritual of a cocktail is, is beautiful, but depending on when you're growing up, it seems stuffy, whereas grabbing a beer or having a glass of wine just seems um, more inclusive, I guess. Yeah. I mean, my grandparents could throw back cocktails. Yeah. With, with you know, when I came of age and realized just how much they were drinking and how they were able to then also kind of continue talking function. and <laughs> function and put, you know, a great meal yeah. on the table or something. It's really, I felt like that really was the greatest generation. You know, they, they had an yeah. incredible tolerance for gimlets and martinis yeah. and uh, many, many fingers of whiskey. Um, and of course, actually, I think also the thing we forget... They were much smaller then, the the glasses, because I've got a lovely, um, I think it's 30s decanter and glasses, and the glasses are quite tiny, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, none at my uh, grandparents' house. Oh, no, no. Just big old tumblers <laughs> <Yeah>. of martinis. <laughs> um, but I, I, I noticed we have this very, uh, Ian has picked out uh, some very classy uh, <laughs> barware, but as you pointed out when he dropped it on <laughs> in front of you, you're like, this is a little small, isn't it? But it's true. It's like, this. it feels like a miniaturized uh, yeah. martini glass, and by our standards, um, but this is how they would have been served in yeah. the past. Yeah. And that's how you have three of them at lunch. Right? Yeah. Um, that's that's pretty possible. Uh, and actually, I think, you know, spirits at lunchtime, I mean, <laughs> I don't do it myself, but I can see that wine's quite soporific, actually. I think a, a, a small amount of spirit probably is preferable. Uh, I would go for that. I mean, to be honest, any kind of day drinking in New York, I'm all in favor of, because I feel like we've really no lost something. Yeah. Nobody does it anymore, and I, I complain about this very often on, my, on this very show. But you know, <laughs> when I had worked at Time Magazine, when I first came there, we were at Rockefeller Center. It was sort of the spiritual home of the three martini lunch. Oh. And we had a prodigious, uh, Jim Kelly was a a legendary editor who ran the magazine. And when I started there, he was a three martini lunch kind of guy. And when I left, he wasn't anymore. Yeah. Um, because like, you know, a sane person, he decided to maybe privilege his health over his mm. his bombast or something. And I really, I, I felt we lost something, yeah. you know, when our leader didn't come back <laughs> half cocked after lunch yeah. and spouting out great ideas and, and just sort of like leading from the front. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not sure what exactly I saw in a character change, but we all felt like it was the changing of the weather, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'm, uh, I don't know how we get back to the three martini lunch, but I'll, I'll be there egging people on. Well, it would be lovely, but I don't think it's going to happen because I, I don't think younger people now drink so much anyway. Yeah. That's not what I saw last night in Shoreditch. Oh, no. <laughs> I will say, I mean, the bars here, it's so fascinating because the bars close early. They close at midnight if you're lucky and people, you know, all of the foolishness that might 
you know, in New York, you might stretch out until three or four in the morning. They feel like they really have to compress mm. into a very small, small amount of time. Um, so it's, it's and, and I do remember this from, you know, my time in Brixton or whatever, just, just running around the streets around 10, 11 o'clock. Yeah. Uh, quite active, the singing, the hugging, the chanting, the vomiting, the, you know, it's a really... Um, it's it's still there. I yeah, the, but apparently the kind of what are they the Manelli Manelli I can't say it. The young people they uh, they are not drinking so much and they're going to the gym and they're very fussy about um, what they put into their bodies, which yeah. is probably a good thing. I shouldn't be derisory. No, no, fuck them. They they can live live long in the you know in the the benighted world we have left them. <laughs> I do remember back in the nineties, I um, had uh, an American woman came. Um, and she came to stay with me for a bit while she was waiting to move into her flat. And I took her out with two friends of mine and we went to the pub and then it was about 10 to 11 or something. So my friends ran up and got us all about three more drinks each. And she goes, but we've still got drink in our glass. I think, yeah, it's 10 to 11. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you see this is the witching hour when, when drinks start multiplying uh, in front of us and then we just slowly work through them. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's uh, I, I listen. Who who am I to say? Because we, um, you know, we we as high schoolers certainly had a very uh, a, a very broken drinking system uh, in the states, and our sort of zero tolerance um, had created all these problems uh, for people under twenty one. Yes, yeah, so it's so strange. So I find that really weird. That you can't drink till you're twenty one in the states. I have zero explanation for it. It doesn't make any sense i mean my kids are 10 and 13 and you know they they can sip on whatever they want i mean it's like it's also a jewish thing i think Mm -hmm. for me like we you know you're supposed to give your kids wine at holidays Mm -hmm. so and and frankly like that's fine they hate it and they should hate it until they don't hate it and then they can have a little bit and they can have a lot and they can figure out for themselves but um you know the number of young men and women we've sent to war who can neither Hold uh, alcohol. Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, they just they legally cannot drink. Yeah. Like, you know, give them a fucking drink. Yeah. Like, you're <laughs> drafting them into the army. Like, yeah. you're sending them to Afghanistan. Like, or you can they, get married. and. Uh, or you can get married and you can drive a car have at a 15. Baby. Yeah. I mean, you can do all of this in incredible, uh, incredible and very consequential stuff. Um, but you can't have alcohol. It makes zero sense to me. So we're, we're agreed on that. Yes. So you are not doing just gin anymore. No. You still make the classic. The sacred gin is yeah. still the, the strong, the kind of the fundament of your now home-based distilling empire. Mm-hmm. But what else are you making? So in addition to the classic London Dry, we make an organic um, gin made with organic spirit. Um, for healthy drinking. <laughs> there you go. There you go, snowflakes. You hear that? You can be healthy and drink gin. And um, then we have two, we make two vodkas. Um, we only started doing the vodka because people who had the gin said, oh, if you made a vodka, we'd buy that as well. So um, we wanted to do something different. So we do something called a London Dry Vodka. So it's made in the same way as our gin, but it doesn't have juniper in it. Um, and then we do an organic vodka. So what is the base for it? For the organic gin, organic vodka, it's organic wheat spirit and for the London dry vodka it's wheat spirit not organic and it's got some botanicals in it so it's got some cubeb it's got a little bit of juniper no it hasn't got juniper sorry I'm getting gimleted <laughs> this is where the spirits drinking and the spirits creating uh, and describing run into conflict all right well let's start let's get that vodka down now so what is the base for the vodka English wheat English wheat no potatoes no potatoes English wheat 
Got it. And it's the same spirit that we, same base that we use for gin. And then London Dry has some botanicals, so it's vodka that's actually got some kind of flavor, yes. yeah. flavor profile. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then you have other gins besides the London Dry yeah. gin. So because we distill a lot of botanicals separately, we can give um, a gin a particular high profile of a botanical. So we do a pink grapefruit, coriander, cardamom, oris. I don't know if you know about oris, but that's what the... What is oris? Oris is the root of the iris plant. And it's used a lot in perfumery. It's the, if you have bricks and mortar, if it's a house, um, the other botanicals are the bricks, and oris is like the mortar. It kind of pulls pulls them together. Huh. About eighty percent of it that's grown goes to France to be in perfume, um, and it's very expensive. It has to be hand harvested from it, um, Italy usually, and they take it, they they pick it, they take the root, peel it dry it and crush it and that's what you use and it's very floral really really floral wow that's astonishing so how did you come up with making gins based on this well oris is in a lot of gins because of the fact that it, it's used as a as a kind of to pull the to to meld the the flavors different flavors together so a lot of people use it um you use people usually use very little there are certain gins i can taste it in i think you can taste it in martin miller's but it's, I think it's very beautiful. And um, so we, we've done a gin which is predominantly Oris, which does really well in Belgium because our Belgian rep over there loves it. So he sells it, which <laughs> is very interesting about sales, actually. He's evangelizing for yes. his own flavor profile. Yes. Um, amazing. Okay. Um, and, and we also did a licorice one, which we've now um, played around a bit with the recipe and we've made it into an old Tom gin. So do you know about old Tom? No. So old Tom gins are another category. Like London Dry, they tend to be a slightly higher ABV, a little bit sweeter, and they sweet they're sweetened with licorice and sugar, and they come back from the um, 18th century when spirit was really rough, and so people would sweeten it so they could yeah. you know, knock it back a little more easily. But of course, now we use very good good quality spirit. I, I you know I have that feeling with an anise or a ouzo or a rocky or any of these kind of anise based mm-hmm. liquors like. That this is a uh, descendant of a time when liquor really sucked. Yeah. And yeah. this is the only reason why a licorice flavored <laughs> alcohol would be acceptable. I am one of those who it's just, <laughs> I cannot understand. I would rather lick the backside of an entire roll of duct tape than, um, you know, willingly down a, a anise or licorice flavored. I, I would say it's sweetened with rather than flavoured. I don't think the licorice flavour is... You'll have to try some before you go too strong. And also we put some distilled orange peel in ours to sort of cut through the sweetness slightly. And okay. it's just won an award for the best old Tom gin in the world. Well, it was the World Gin Awards and it won the best old Tom gin. So I'm assuming that makes it the best in the world. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, I will try it I will, as in the spirit of adventure and... Uh, Trying to expand my own very narrow walls around. I mean, is it? Is it? Does it taste anisette? Like, it, does it? I don't think it does. Okay. I don't think it's incredibly smooth. But having said that, as you know, in uh, Scandinavia, they love all things licorice, yes. and it's selling really well in Denmark. It's doing really well in Denmark. So my goodness. All right. Well, the Danes have some things to answer for. They do. Greenland, and now this. <laughs> um, okay. Fair enough. Uh, and you and the new bottle that you have coming out is is a is a is a bitter base. It's a liqueur. That's a. It's so the rosehip cup because we, well the other thing we also do we make three vermouths using English wine, and we made those in collaboration with Alessandro Palazzi at Duke's Hotel, 
So we made our own gin. We made our um, own vermouth. So we make a rosso, an amber, and a, an extra dry, which Alessandro uses for all his martinis. Whatever gin you call it, Dukes, you'll always get our vermouth. And um, we thought if we had something like Campari, I have to say, that, yeah, something like Campari, we could make our own Negronis. <laughs> so we made, we weren't, uh, so we made, um, we call it Rosehip Cup. And it makes a great Negroni, but it also, in fact, it's used for the Negronis at Rules in um, Covent Garden. Do you know Rules? I don't know. Oh, you should go there sometime. It's uh, it's London's oldest restaurant. Okay. And people like Graham Greene used to go there, and um, it's got again, it's got a very literary. Yes, I can see, I can sense the theme with you here. <laughs> <laughs> you, you want your books and your spirits. To, yes, yes. To meld. Yes. So. Um, so we made, but we found out it made a, it makes a really lovely spritz, and obviously spritzers are hugely, hugely popular. So um, that I, is what we've got a new bottle, and that's we're trying, we're going to push it as a spritz. I, I love that. So you're essentially, you know, seizing the means of Negroni production for yourselves. You, mm-hmm. you don't want to have to rely on an outside source to get this. No. And what can people do in the United States to find uh, to find sacred gin and all of these? sacred vodkas and so on. So there is a place in LA called Flask Wine and uh, Whiskey or um, something. We call it Flask. Okay. And um, they ship all over the States. They have most of our stuff and they ship all over the States or Bounty Hunter in Napa. Great. Our focus on the States has um, quietened down a bit, but we are aiming to have more of an impact there. Got it. Um, But you're all over Europe. We are. So yeah. people need to come here yeah. uh, for some of it, or they can order. I'll put uh, we'll we'll put the links in the show notes, and and uh, so people can um, get their own. And I think for now we should probably uh, do a little bit of that uh, boundary expansion off off mic. <laughs> We'd love to taste some of this uh, world's best old Tom. Okay, uh, gin. And um, other than that, I uh, I really appreciate it. It's such a such a pleasure to come uh, to the place in London. Uh, that makes the best London dry gin, uh, and it's uh, it's 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 like this is how you want distilling to always be. Thank somehow. you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hillary. The trip is hosted by me, Nathan Thornberg. On this episode, Taffy Mukanyadzi was our editor. Emily Marinoff, our producer. Alexa Van Sickle, our online editor. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode artwork by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. A few updates since we recorded this episode in the before-before times. The price of that gin has actually stayed about the same. For less than $40, you can get a bottle of some of the world's best gin. Free shipping in the UK and still available in the US from Flask or Bounty Hunter in California. There are links in the show notes, as there is to Oliver Bullough's Roads and Kingdoms feature, the new gin craze. And in big news for Hillary and Ian, they've actually moved their vacuum distillery out of the playroom of their house and into a brand new bottle shop and tasting room in Highgate High Street this summer. Another update. I know I slagged anise flavored spirits in this episode, and for that I have to apologize. Actually, ever since moving to Queens last month, I have been swimming in a gorgeous ocean of ouzo, the preferred drink of lotus eaters like me. Next week on Thursday, the re-release of our previously paywalled episodes from London continues. It is the last of the London episodes, damn it all, 
but it's a good one with Nud Dudia, whose life story from his childhood in Zambia to his unexpected love affair with Mexican cuisine has helped bring serious taco culture to London, now Oslo. We will meet you there. <laughs> 